The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you, the king of the universe. The creator and sustainer of everything that is. The one who is worthy of all worship and honor and praise. Father, we come as a people that wants to live in submission to you and to your word. We come as a people desiring to give you the glory that you are due. Father, we come as a people confessing that these things don't always come easy. We come as a people confessing that the world screams so loudly that our own hearts and sins scream so loudly that oftentimes we find it difficult to hear your word, to receive your word, to walk in obedience to your word. So Father, what we ask you to do this morning is that thing which only you can do giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and obey the word that you speak to us now. Father, we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So we return this morning to the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. Just as a reminder of where we are, it is now Tuesday of Holy Week. This has been a long day full of much instruction and conflict. And Jesus has left the temple for the final time. He's headed back to the east, and now he's seated upon the Mount of Olives. He's undergoing some private instruction with Peter and Andrew and James and John. So this really is a critical section of Scripture. Jesus has concluded his ministry of public preaching, and he's now going to issue his, his firm proclamation that his judgment has come upon Israel and that the entire city is going to be left desolate, that the temple is going to be destroyed, and this is because Jesus had come to his people as their Messiah and their king. You see, the law and the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, the entire religious system, it had all been pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, but they rejected him. They completely missed the purpose of it all. For the Jewish people, they saw religion as nothing more than a way for them to earn favor with God. And they believed that their lineage, that their heritage pointing back to Father Abraham, that, that guaranteed them a place in the kingdom of God. And so their concept of the Son of Man was that they were just waiting for someone to come and give them their just rewards. They were waiting for someone that was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom, a place of absolute peace, that they were going to run the Gentiles out from this holy city of peace. But instead what happened with the coming of the Son of Man was that he proclaimed to them that the kingdom of God was at hand, but that the only way to have entrance into this kingdom was to repent, was to turn away from your sin and to trust fully and completely in him, the true king, the son of the most high God. But these people, they would not do this. They were much like the wicked tenants in a leased out vineyard. They had already beaten and mistreated all the other messengers that God had sent before, but now they were going to take the life of his son. As a result of this, they were going to be cast out of the kingdom forever while God welcomes in the nations into this kingdom that he brings. Now this does not, of course, speak to the entire nation of Israel. God will always have that faithful remnant. Within every generation, God will always have that faithful remnant amongst the Jewish people that he holds by his hand, that he makes sure that the promises that he's made to them, that they will come to fruition. And yet because of this hardening that's come upon them, because they refuse to receive Jesus Christ in the only way of entrance into the kingdom of God, the nation as a whole has come under a temporary hardening. This will, of course, serve to be to their greater good once all is said and done. That as the Gentiles come in, eventually there will be this righteous jealousy that stirs up within the hearts of the Jewish people and they themselves will come to faith. 
we'll see some type of, as best I can understand Romans 11, we'll see some, types of, some type of mass conversion as many of the Israelites, many of the Jewish people alive in that day, their hearts will be turned and they will come to salvation. They will come to believe in Jesus Christ, the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. And it's not until that moment, until all of the elect among the Gentiles and all of the elect among the Jews, until they've all come together as one people in Jesus Christ, it's not until that moment that he will return. But until that glorious day, Jesus Christ reigns today from heaven. Having condescended to come to earth, being born as one in the form of a servant, refusing to grasp equality with God, refusing to treat equality with God as a thing to be grasped, coming to live as one under the law, obedience to the Father even to the point of death, death upon a cross, the ultimate of humiliation, that Jesus Christ came by undergoing this humiliation, he would receive the ultimate in exaltation, that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, given a kingdom without end, worthy of all honor and praise, an unending dominion. You see, Jesus has always been the infinite Son of God, but he would become the Son of Man because this was always God's plan. God's plan was always that his creation would be ruled by a man. And so in the coming of Jesus Christ, the joining together fully of humanity with that which is deity, we find in this one man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, our Lord, our Master, our Savior, we find this one that will rule over all creation. So as we discussed last week, we see evidence of this in the destruction of the temple. Just as Jesus has predicted, the temple, this place where God had tabernacled, where he had dwelled with his people for so long, it would be torn down, not one stone left upon another, utter, utterly decimated. And it remains like that today. God was making clear to his people that he does not dwell in temples made by human hands, but in the temple that is his son, and in any who come and join themselves to his son in faith. So the fall of the temple the destruction of the temple, it only served to provide evidence of this, proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he has done. We find even further evidence of this in the gathering together of the saints. As God's people go out as heralds, sounding the trumpet, extending this offer of peace to the people in the name of the king, and as God gathers together his chosen, his elect, his saints from the four winds of the earth, he gathers them together in one people, we see even further evidence that Jesus Christ reigns. As the gospel goes out, we find lives transformed, as we find hearts turned, as we find knees bowing and tongues confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. As we see this happening, we are yet again reminded that Jesus Christ reigns. We have assurance that Jesus Christ reigns. So we gather together as those people that have been brought into the kingdom. We gather together as those that have been chosen, elect, called in from the four corners of the earth. We come in submission to the king. We come as citizens to the kingdom, and we come ready to subject ourselves, ready to submit wholly and fully to the word that he speaks to us. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please, in reverence to the reading of this word. We return to Mark's gospel, chapter 13, beginning in verse 28. This is the word of God. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So I've gone to great lengths to try to explain to you what I believe Jesus is speaking about here in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. And as I've told you, I believe that everything that's come up to this point is pointed backwards to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., now, as with most prophecy, there are going to be levels. There are going to be layers to the fulfillment of this prophecy. I heard one man this week, this, when he was speaking about the fulfillment of prophecy, he compared it to a mountain range. When you're a long way off, you look up, and it looks like just a perfect row of mountains, that they're all lined up perfectly. And yet, as you come upon one mountain, what you recognize is that there is great depth to this mountain range, that some may be miles off yet still in the future, even as you come to the first of these mountains. That's the way that prophecy tends to work. From our vantage point, we may look forward to something yet to come, and we assume that it's all going to happen at the exact same time, and yet with each fulfillment, we realize that there's even greater layers to come. So that everything that we see here, 
the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, this is but a foretaste of even something greater. The Son of God, that day of his return, the end of the age, the Son of God coming, coming to judge the world, coming to, coming to resurrect and to judge the world, casting all those that are found in their sin, all those that are not, are not found clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, casting all of them into eternal darkness. That the horrible scenes, as bad as they are, the scenes that are recorded for us by the historian Josephus, as horrible as those scenes are, they are nothing compared to the wrath to come for the lost in the end of the age. But the subject at hand, the primary purpose for Jesus' teaching at this moment, the primary focus for his teaching at this moment remains the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. So we read in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So there are fig trees all over the Mount of Olives. There's a number of times in scripture where we'll find the fig tree is used as a symbol for the nation of Israel. You remember back in chapter 11, as Jesus came and he found the fig tree and leaf, but it failed to produce fruit. And so he placed a curse upon that tree. That tree would wither before the next day came immediately. We know very clearly that that fig tree is meant to represent the nation of Israel. And so a number of people, they come to a text like this and they read about this fig tree and they assume that immediately Jesus must be talking about the nation of Israel. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus has in mind. And I believe we get some clarity from that if we look at Luke's parallel. In Luke chapter 21 verse 29, what Jesus says is, look at the fig tree and all the trees. See, there would have been a number of different kinds of trees there on the Mount of Olives. There are, as the name would suggest, olive trees also found there. There's a number of different kinds of trees found there on the Mount of Olives, and any of them would have done just fine for this teaching. I'm imagining that perhaps Jesus and his disciples, they had pulled away from the crowd, they had come up onto the mountain, and they were just looking for a nice shady spot to sit down. So they found themselves seated beneath a shade tree that was happened to be a fig tree. Now, you remember that the fig tree that is now withered, the one that Jesus placed a curse on just the day before, it was full of leaves. So it would have provided a nice place for these men to sit down. So I'm picturing Jesus and his disciples. They're sitting down under a fig tree. And then Jesus perhaps motions up to the tree or maybe he breaks off a limb in order to make this point because this is a parable. He's going to use this picture, this word picture, to help bring clarity to everything that he's just been telling his disciples. And what he says is, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So these were country boys from Galilee. They knew about fishing. They knew about agriculture. So Jesus speaks to them in terms that they would have understood. He tells them that you will know when summer is near, when the tree begins to, pu to push its sap out to its limbs, whenever the branch becomes tender, whenever you see the leaves popping up, you will know that summer is near. They would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Now I have to imagine that if Jesus had chosen to come today, if he'd come in, and come in this setting, he would have maybe used different parables. See, each generation and every people, we have our own signs of the changing of the seasons. When the pollen gets thick, whenever your allergies get bad, you know that spring is upon you. Whenever football practice begins, you know that fall is near. Whenever the days get short, whenever you have a couple of cool nights, you know that winter is right around the corner. We all just have these signs instinctively, even if you're not looking at your calendar. There are just these things that you sense in the air that let you know that the seasons are changing. For these men, it would have been the change in the leaves, the tenderness of the limbs. They would have known instinctively that summer was near. Verse 25, excuse me, 29. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Mark says, you will know that he is near. This has led people to wonder, who is he? Many people say that the he that he's referencing here is Jesus Christ, the return of the Son of Man. And that makes sense if what you believe that Jesus has been talking about previous to this is in fact the return of Jesus Christ. If you believe that the abomination of desolation points forward to some great tri tribulation, to a seven-year period of great trial that immediately precedes the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ, then it makes perfect sense that the he here would be Jesus Christ, that he is very near at the gate. In fact, people that hold to that belief, they hold that the fig tree is in fact the nation of Israel. Many of them will say that with the the return of the Jewish people back to Israel in 1948, that that was the tree becoming tender, that that was the sign that Jesus was very near at the very gates. Many of you probably hold to that position. If you hold to a more preterist view like I do, and you believe that the major focus of Jesus' teaching is here, the destruction of the temple, then perhaps you believe that the he that is at the gates is the abomination of desolation. Perhaps you believe that the he that's at the gates is Titus, the Roman general that was leading the Roman army in to destroy Jerusalem and to desecrate the temple. 
Now, if you look at the Greek word there, though, what you will find is the Greek word that's used is esten. This word esten, it's merely the third person, singular form of the verb to be. So depending upon gender, it can either be translated as he is, like you find in the ESV here, or it can be translated as it is, like you find in the King James translation. So that whenever you're reading Greek, you've got to determine in what sense does he mean this? Is it he is? Is it it is? I believe that perhaps we can find some clarification, again, if we go back to Luke's parallel. What we find Luke saying is this, Luke 21, 31. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It seems to me very clear that it is it is near rather than he is near. And the it that is near is the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ seated upon his throne, coming in clouds to resume his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. His reigning in the hearts and lives, even now, in the hearts and lives of his people here on earth, ruling and reigning, demanding and deserving absolute obedience, an unending dominion, that that is the thing that has come near with this sign. So it seems to me what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that you will know when the temple is about to be destroyed. You will know when it is time for you to flee to the mountains, like the seasons changing. If you will heed my words, if you will read my words in public gatherings like this one, if you will keep them before your eyes, if you will recite them to your children, you will instinctively know when the time comes. I don't have to give you an exact day. I don't have to give you an exact time. You will sense it like the changing of the seasons when it is time for you to flee. You will know that this is a sign that I am in fact seated upon my throne at the right hand of the Father. You will know that the destruction of the temple is near. You will know that my vindication has come upon you because the world has rejected me. You will sense all these things and know that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the kingdom of God is near with the changing of the seasons, with this sign that is yet to come. So verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So if I've, as I've told you often, I believe that this verse is absolutely critical to my understanding of the Olivet Discourse. You see, if Jesus is talking about a literal generation, if he's talking about the people that were there on that mountain with him, people that were standing there hearing these words in real time, then I have a very hard time believing that what Jesus was talking about leading up to this verse 30 was anything other than the events that happened in the year 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. Now, I know about all the other interpretations. As I said last week, there's a number of people that say that what Jesus was predicting was that he would return within the lifetime of the apostles, and he was just mistaken. Jesus believed that he was coming back before Peter and Andrew and James and John were going to die, and he was just confused. There's other people that say that what Jesus was saying, that he would come back within the lifetime of the apostles, and that he was correct, that Jesus Christ's return was only spiritual. Perhaps he was talking about was the day of Pentecost when his spirit came upon the church. Perhaps what he was talking about was his vindication, his judgment that came in the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jesus' return was purely spiritual. So there's a number of camps that say, yes, Jesus believed that he was coming back. He was predicting that he was coming back within the lifetime of the generation that was standing there upon that mountain within, before him. But I cannot hold either of these views. Firstly, because we know that Jesus does not err. He is the ultimate and perfect prophet. He is the very son of God. As we will see soon enough, his words will not pass away. They will all come to fruition. In addition to that, there's, while Jesus does talk about his coming spiritually, about his being with us even unto the end of the age, our ultimate hope is the church is holding on to the reality that Jesus Christ will return exactly as he ascended, exactly as we see him going up into heaven in Acts 1, that personally and physically, Jesus Christ comes to reign with his church for all time. That's our ultimate hope in this, to be with Jesus Christ physically, personally, not just some spiritual return. So because of that, I cannot believe that if Jesus is talking about a literal generation, that he's also talking about Jesus' prediction of his coming back within that generation, either mistakenly or otherwise. So that seems to leave us then with two options. Either what Jesus is saying here in verse 30 is the most literal sense that this literal generation will not pass away and then everything that comes before must be things that happened before the year 70 AD or in the year 70 AD or when Jesus speaks about all these things happening within this generation, he must be speaking about the generation in a more figurative language and then you're wide open to believe whatever you want about everything that comes before the verse 30. So I will tell you about one other 
possible interpretation here. And frankly, it's not one that I hold, but it is very attractive. It's perhaps the most persuasive argument where you can hold to Jesus talking about a literal 40-year generation and talking about his return, the end of the age, the judgment, the resurrection, and all the rest of that. See, there, there are people that argue that when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, they claim that what he means there is that from the time this thing starts, from when you see the abomination of desolation, from when you see the temple destroyed, to when you see the coming of the Son of Man, that the, the generation alive when this thing starts will not pass away until this thing is completed. You understand what I'm saying here? He's saying that the generation that is there whenever the abomination of desolation reveals himself, that they will be there to see all the rest of these things take place. This view, of course, it requires the rebuilding of a temple and a number of other things that I just can't hold to. But it is an attractive argument that Jesus is saying this generation, this generation that sees the coming of the Antichrist, this generation that sees the great tribulation, this generation that sees the destruction of some future temple, that that generation will not waste away before Jesus Christ comes back, resurrects man, judges them all, casts the lost into hell, and all the rest of what we see. Now, of course, I don't hold to that belief, but if you hold to it, I can see how you get there. The problem for me, though, is the context in which Jesus delivers all this all of the Old Testament language that I've delivered to you showing the way that the men sitting there on that mountain would have immediately understood Jesus' teaching, it really does seem to me that if Jesus is referring to a literal generation, that he was talking about the people that were right there on that mountain with him in that moment. You recall how we spent quite a bit of time in Daniel 7 last week talking about this picture of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, coming to the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man presenting himself before the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom, his dominion, his authority, his power, his glory the coming of the Son of Man into his kingdom. We talked about how the destruction of the temple was a sign, was a picture, was an assurance that that thing had come. That along with the gathering together of the saints from the ends of the earth. So we find Jesus talking in very similar terms a little bit earlier than this in Matthew's gospel. He talks about how anyone that would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. Within that same context, he assures his disciples that he is coming back. But then he says these words, Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, there are some standing here listening to my words who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Seems to me that he's clearly saying this generation, some of you standing here, look, some of them would have been old men and some of them would have died. But he's saying, generally speaking, within the lifetime of everyone standing here within earshot of these words, you won't die before you see this thing spoken of in Daniel 7. The Son of Man coming in clouds to the right hand of his Father. This thing which we see played out, this earthly picture of a heavenly reality and the destruction of the temple and the gathering together, the preaching of the gospel and the gathering together of the saints. So, at the end of five weeks now of study of the Olivet Discourse, and we're not done with it yet, but at the end of five weeks of study of the Olivet Discourse, I suppose I would sum up as best I can my understanding of everything that Jesus said like this, that the people of Israel have rejected Jesus Christ and thereby the salvation that he comes to offer. Because of this, they're under the judgment of God as a vindication, as a proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he has done. They're going to find the temple completely destroyed. Jerusalem left absolutely desolate. In addition to this, his followers will go out as heralds, they will sound the trumpet, they will preach the gospel, and through the preaching of ordinary men like you and I, God's spirit will come and draw in those that have been chosen by him, gathering together the saints, building the kingdom of God, not by priests, not by sacrifices, not by temples, but only through his son, Jesus Christ. At the same time, we know that Jesus did not rejoice in the destruction that was coming upon the temple that he lamented over it. We also know that he sought to preserve his people, the church. It was they that were gonna go out and preach this gospel, and so he gave them a warning. He told them, this is how you will know when the temple is about to be destroyed. They asked him questions. When will we know? What signs will we have? He first talks to them about the ordinary signs of the times. The wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, all the natural occurrences, plus the rejection of the world, the persecution of the world that's guaranteed to come upon them. He tells them, you can't freak out when these things happen. You can't freak out because I've told you they're going to happen, and you can't freak out because you can't believe that this means that the end of the world is coming. These are just the ordinary signs of the times. But there will be a sign when you will know. 
just like the seasons changing, you will sense it as you see the Roman army coming in, as you see, King, as you see General Titus leading them in, you're going to be inclined to run within the walls of Jerusalem because that's what people in that day did. You're going to be inclined to run within the safety of the walls of Jerusalem believing that that's your best bet for being spared. But I tell you to do the opposite. I tell you don't even go back in the city to gather your things, that you run for the mountains, that only there may you be spared. And this is my purpose, that my gospel may go to the ends of the earth and that you may see that I am on my throne, that my kingdom may expand in the hearts and in the lives of those that hear this message and that all of this would happen within their lifetime. But how can we be sure how can we be confident that all of these things are going to happen? No matter what you believe. Again, I've told you, my goal is not to convince you of my belief. There are plenty of good and faithful saintly men, men a whole lot smarter than I am that don't believe much of any of what I've just said. They believe that all those things happened, but they don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about in this text. So whether you believe like I do that these are things that happened in the year 70 AD, or you believe that Jesus is talking in a purely future sense about his return and the end of the age, but no matter what you believe about this text, how can you be sure that the words that Jesus has spoken will come to pass? He says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth this is a representation of the entire created order. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that we know in this world, the entire cosmos, the sun by which we mark time, the moon by which we set our calendars, the stars by which we chart our course, everything, the heavens and the earth, all of it. Now the disciples, they were amazed. They were amazed at the prediction that Jesus made that this temple, this seemingly indestructible temple, this temple that had stones that weighed upwards of a million pounds, this temple that had columns that were up to 20 foot high. This temple that they believed, because it had been under construction for 80 years, they believed that surely it must last well beyond their lifetime. They were so amazed by Jesus' prediction that it would be thrown down that they believed that surely with it must come the end of the world. That surely with it must come his return. Beyond that, whenever Jesus moved on to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, the throwing down of a nation, whenever he talked about it in, in Old Testament terms, cataclysmic terms, the sun and the moon going dark, the heavens being shaken, the stars falling from the sky. They felt the weight of all of this. Again, I say a truly cataclysmic event. They were just shocked but had no clue yet that this was but a picture, but a foreshadowing of something even greater yet to come, that heaven and earth will pass away. That's where this thing is headed. Everything that exists, God created it from nothing. Ex nihilo, you remember that phrase? We talked about it months ago. Ex nihilo, it means out of nothing. That everything that God made, God made from nothing. God didn't use somebody else's stuff. God didn't gather together some stuff that had always been here. Everything that is, God made. Nothing existed until God made it. Every last subatomic particle, every single atom, it came from the hand of God. It responds. It must obey. It is under the absolute sovereignty of the hand of God because he's made it all out of nothing. And then he took that which he had made and he brought it into order. He revealed his good purpose for it. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. God bringing order and giving purpose to this thing that he has created. But with the fall of Adam, what we see is the introduction of disorder. What we see is God coming and demanding an answer. He goes first to Adam. Husbands, you must be reminded that it's the man first that will give an answer. He comes to the man, and what does the man do? He immediately blames his wife. He goes to the woman, and what does the woman do? She immediately blames the devil. All of them completely separated from God. This great relationship that had been formed there in the garden, it was utterly broken to the point that we see Adam and Eve hiding from God trying to hide their sin, trying to hide their nakedness from God. The ground then becomes a thorny place. Work becomes hard. Childbirth becomes painful. The entire cosmos seems to come into chaos. Is there going to be earthquakes now? There's going to be storms. There's going to be famine. There's going to be drought. And we all know it. Even the atheists know it. Even those that know nothing about God, you look around and you know, you know this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way things are supposed to work. But most of the modern world, they think they can fix it. If they can just convince people to act in the right way, and of course the right way is always the way that lines up with their beliefs. If you can just get people to act in the right way, then we can fix this. Then there's other people that just throw up their hands and they go, well, it's just too far gone. So you might as well get what you can while the getting's good. You might as well get what you can before this whole thing burns up. But what Jesus is saying is, no, my father has a good purpose. It is he that has created everything that is. It is he that holds everything that is together. This creation will reach its appointed purpose. It is not until the appointed time that this thing will be consumed. All in God's good and perfect timing. Jesus seems to give us a picture of this in the revelation of the apostle John. Years after this, Revelation 21.1, we read this. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God has a purpose in all of this. This isn't the end of creation. This is the passing of something old while it gives way to something new. This doesn't seem to me to be the destruction of the world that is while it's replaced with something altogether new. Seems more like a redemption, more like a renewal. This seems to be the picture of Psalm 102. We read this, Psalm 102, beginning in verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. This passing away seems to be much like our own death and resurrection. You see, we aren't destroyed and then replaced with something new. There's a resurrection. There's a redemption. There's a restoration. There's a renewal. That this very same body that you have, you'll still be you and I'll still be me. That we will be, in fact, raised from the dead, raised out of the dirt to which we are given. That God's going to give us then an honorable, a glorious, an imperishable body. He's going to take that which has been polluted and corrupted and desecrated by sin. And he's going to craft it into something new, something fitted for his good purpose. And just as Paul tells the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, that we're a new creation. We who are in Christ are a new creation. That the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That heaven itself waits for this glorious day. That just as we wait for this glorious day when we will be given these new bodies, these perfect bodies, these resurrected and redeemed bodies, that creation itself groans for this day. That just as the kingdom of God comes today spiritually in the hearts and the lives of God's people, it will come to ultimate fulfillment physically here on this earth. The new heavens and the new earth that he's going to reform. That just as we must be fitted for the pleasures of heaven, just as we must have a body that can sustain the pleasures of an eternity with Jesus Christ, that the entire cosmos must be fitted for peace and justice and righteousness, a place where the kingdom comes in its fruition. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is affirming here is that that day will come, that heaven and earth will pass away. Now, Peter talks about this in his second letter. Peter, of course, who was there on the mountain on that day. Peter, who took these words and gave them, we believe, to Mark to record for us here. So listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So according to Peter, the reality that this place will burn up, that it will be renewed, that it will be restored, that a new heavens and a new earth will come, the question that is before us is, what kind of people should we be? That's the key question in this. What type of people should we be? What do lives of holiness and godliness look like in a world that is wasting away? I've tried to keep that before you every week as we come to this discourse, telling you that this isn't just about some knowledge. Look, God's okay with us not understanding everything that's going to happen in the end of the age. Clearly, or we would know it. He's okay with us having disagreements in our understanding about what Jesus is teaching here. Now, Jesus really did mean something. There really is a right answer. But clearly Jesus is okay and he leaves room for disagreement amongst his people as we wrestle with what the end times are going to look like, what is going to be the order, ordering of the end times. But he leaves no room of disagreement for this. The question before each of us as we contemplate the end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ, the question must be, what kind of people should we be? How do we live in light of this? What do our lives look like if we're really going to believe this? So you've got to ask yourself, do I live like a man who believes that the world as it is will not last forever? Do I live like a man that really believes that Jesus Christ will return and that we will all stand before him as judge? And do I even know what life would look like if I really believed those things? Think with me about it for a moment. If I truly believe the words that Jesus has said, if I really believe that in the end this world will burn up, if I really believe that all my works will be tested by fire, that only that that is carried out in faith and to the glory of Jesus Christ will remain to the end, if I really believe that someday soon Jesus Christ is coming and I will give him an account for every word and every thought and every deed and every minute and every talent and every dollar of my life, 
If I truly believe that my very purpose for existence is to enjoy God and glorify him forever and ever, but I will not glorify and enjoy him in eternity if I do not glorify and enjoy him today, what would my life look like? I can tell you this. I'd spend a whole lot less money, a whole lot less time trying to get comfortable in this world. I'd spend a whole lot less money, a whole lot less time, a whole lot less anxiety trying to find a peaceful, comfortable, easy place in this world. I believe that I would live with a fire in my belly, with a purpose in my walk, with an absolute passion for the kingdom of God that I now belong to and a longing for the coming of the king to whom I submit. So, I've had people over the last, couple of people over the last weeks that have asked me, or that have commented, I guess. They haven't really asked me. I give people answers to questions they don't ask a lot of times. But I've, I've heard comments in the last couple of weeks about how serious things are around here. The way that we preach, the way that we teach, the way that we talk about God, the way that we talk about sin, the way that we talk about ourselves, and you'll hear things like, it just feels so heavy all the time. To which I say yes. Absolutely, yes. This isn't a sadness. This isn't an anxiety. This isn't an anger. This isn't a fear. We're filled with hope and joy and gratitude as we enjoy the good gifts that God has given us even now. But we believe that Jesus actually means what he says. And if we're to believe what Jesus, that Jesus means what he says, then we must fight. At all times, we must fight. Staying alert, staying sober, staying on guard. Dear friends, we're at war. And we're not at war with the people of this world. We're at war with the one that keeps this world in darkness. With the present powers of this age. With the sins of our own flesh. With our own hearts that want to drag us away. We're at war with those things that want to drag us away from Jesus Christ. We're at war with those things that want to destroy his church. We're at war with those things that want to damn our soul. We're at war. And so yes, it's gonna feel heavy, but in the middle of that heaviness, we're gonna find joy. Under the weight of that heaviness, we're gonna find hope in the middle of it all because we know that the victory has been won. We know that the battle is secured. We know that the outcome is guaranteed. And so we find joy in the middle of all of this, but it doesn't mean we stop fighting. It doesn't mean we let our guard down. I, I, I just recently got around to watching Band of Brothers. Y'all know the this, this series about, about the war and one of the things that struck me in this movie is as these men are out there in France or wherever they were and they're in the middle of this just, just incredible war and there is death and there is bloodshed and there is just all manner of just stress that's coming upon them at all moments. And then there'll be these little moments where they just find themselves and they'll find a piano and one of them knows how to play a piano and they just, they play a song and they giggle and they laugh and they sing. They'll come into another place and they'll find some bottles of wine and a little bit of food and they just sit down and have a meal and they, they enjoy it and they, they joke with each other and there's this camaraderie and this love and this, how, how are these guys finding joy in the middle of this? Dear friends, that's what I feel like. We're in the middle of spiritual warfare. Demons abound. Satan roams like a lion seeking to trap and to ensnare one of us. If the powers of this world try to destroy what it is that God is building within this church, and we have these moments where we stumble onto the good gifts that God has given us as the world abuses those gifts. As they use them for their own selfish desires. We come upon them every once in a while in the middle of this war, in the middle of this, uh, war that's around us and we find more joy than the world because they take it for granted. We know who gave us this. We know the weight of everything that's going on around us and so steak tastes good in the middle of war. A good night's rest is really, really helpful in the middle of war. A kind word from a friend and a hug around the neck is helpful whenever you've got the, wor the world coming against you, the powers of this age coming against you. So yes, we find joy. We find hope. We find assurance in the middle of even this war. But dear friends, we don't let our guard down. We don't ever let it get it twisted because that's what Satan wants. He wants to lull you to sleep. He wants to convince you that you're in peacetime. He wants to convince you that he's for you. He wants to convince you that you don't have to walk with any kind of care. And so the question is, what kind of people should we be? And we can't fully unpack it with the time that's left, but I'll tell you this, it'll be a whole lot different than the world. So we look around us at a world that's buying stock in the Titanic. 
We look around us at a world that is storing up bales of hay in a barn soaked with gasoline, and they wonder if it's going to last. We look around us in a world that, at the end of this thing, they're going to find they've completely wasted their life. They've placed all their hope in all the wrong places. So we must be a people that fights. We don't fight against them. We fight against our own temptation to sloth, our own temptation to laziness, our own temptation to contentment, our own temptation to, to, to lay back and believe we're at peace. For many of us, it's just fighting the temptation not to be involved in the war. You can't hide in your bed long enough for this war to go away. I'll hear people that will post things on Facebook, and I'm not bagging on you if you post this, okay, whatever, but people will post things like, I just can't adult today. You don't get a choice. You don't get a choice. Satan is coming for your soul. No, it's secure in the hands of Jesus Christ, and he will not lose it. There's nothing you can do to lose it, just as there's nothing you can do to secure it. And yet he says, the means by which I'll secure you is you're going to fight. You're actually going to believe my words the way I've given them. And in the power of my Holy Spirit, you're going to fight. You're going to stay on guard. You're going to know the temptation of your heart. I've compared it often to my truck. My truck veers left. I know this. So I get in my truck and I immediately drive straight like this. You know the bend of your heart. You know the sins of your life. You know the ditches that you're constantly finding yourself in. So you wake up in the morning and you go, I'm going to drive like this because I want to go straight. Because I believe the words that Jesus has said. So we don't allow ourselves to get too comfortable. We don't aim for comfort. That's no longer the goal. Listen, God brings us some comfort. God brings us a warm meal. God brings us a friend. Praise him. We'll enjoy it a whole lot more than the world will. But our goal can't be comfort. Our goal can't be ease. Our, can't, our goal can't be to be pain-free in this world. We will never be until we are home. We will never find that true and eternal rest until we are home. And so we join the battle, believing what Jesus has said. Now, many of you, you think the words I've just said are melodramatic. I get it. I get it. You think it's too heavy and it's too silly. I think that's just the kind of things you'd imagine a preacher to say because I got to get you worked up into some kind of frenzy so you'll keep coming back here and listen to me every week that's fine dear friends I would tell you that you're a person that does not know that there's a war around you I wonder sometimes if God can make these spiritual things visible I think that's the beauty in some of these Christian fiction writers some of the stuff that C.S. Lewis does and some of these other guys that they, they take that which is spiritual and they give it a physical picture for us to hold on to dear friends if you could see the demons that were encircling this place and you could see the angels that were a battle against them if you could see your own sin when you looked in the mirror at yourself if you could see men literally being cast down into the pit of hell you'd live a whole lot different so the question is just because you can't see it you don't believe it just because you can't see it you think i'm being over dramatic that's the case and you don't believe the words of jesus christ heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away everything will pass away but the words of Jesus Christ will not pass away he's of course referring to everything that's come up to this point he's talking about the destruction of the temple he's talking about of course ultimately his return his destruction of the world these words will not pass away so you look at the Rocky Mountains you look at the redwoods of California you look at the sun and the moon and the stars and all of these things will pass away and I know that's unsettling I've never been somewhere where there was an earthquake before, but I can't even imagine what it feels like. The ground's not supposed to move. But dear friends, I would remind you that every time there's a horrific natural disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, a flood, tsunamis, whatever it is, the people that live in that town, they start asking themselves, where can I go that's safe? I don't want to endure this ever again. Where can I go? Where is higher ground? Where is sturdier ground? Where can I set up my life that I and my family will be safe? Dear friends, this is the answer on the word of God. You want to know the thing that's not going to waste away? There's nowhere you can go that's going to be settled forever because it's all passing away. There's no bedrock strong enough that will withstand the fires to come. So you set your life upon him and his word. What kind of people should we be? The people of the word. The people that devotes our life to the word of God. And we don't place our hope on anything this world has to offer. We don't place our hope on anything else, no matter how stable, no matter how strong, no matter how long it's been here. We know that it's all a mist and a vapor, and it is all wasting away. But the words of Christ will not pass away. So what kind of people should we be? We should be a people of the word. A people that doesn't place our hope in anything else this world has to offer. People that doesn't get lured away by the promises of this world. 
people that builds our life on the word of God, not just the words that he's spoken here in the Olivet Discourse, all of the words, knowing that the words of Christ are the words of God. Every last word that he's given us, that Jesus speaks the word of God. And we're gonna unpack this more next week, but in his humiliation, in his coming and taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, in his refusing to treat equality with God as a thing to be grasped, the son of God took upon himself the fullness of man, and yet he lost none of his godness. God can't cease to be God. God cannot lose any of his attributes with regards to being God. That's what it means to be God. But in his humanity, Jesus Christ has limited knowledge. We see clear evidence of this by the fact that he had to grow and learn. Jesus had to study the Torah. He had to live in complete submission and obedience to the Father. In his humanity, Jesus did not possess all knowledge. But Jesus was not just fully man. He was perfectly man. All that God designed for man to be. All that Adam and you and I have failed to be in our humanity, Jesus Christ fulfilled that to the fullest extent. That while Jesus Christ's humanity did not possess all knowledge, everything he did possess was perfect. Having been filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, that he spoke and he served and he endured in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying only those words which his father gave him to say. So however you understand this great mystery, and dear friends, this is the greatest mystery of all time, the coming together of two natures and one man, fully God, fully man, and one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the greatest mystery in all the world. Listen, the concept that God makes things out of nothing, it doesn't stretch me beyond my understanding. I can kind of, I can kind of wrap my mind around that to some degree. The concept that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, I, I, can, I can put some picture to that. I can have some understanding of that. But the idea of how within one man, Jesus Christ our Lord, can be the fullness of God, the fullness of man, and yet there'll be no blending. There'll be no changing. There'll be no shifting. It's not some new blended nature coming together. That's the greatest mystery of all time. And yet, no matter how you think about this reality, no matter how you think about this mystery, you must come to the end of this thing and recognize that the words of Jesus Christ are the words of God. Thus saith the Lord. That's why you see Jesus speaking in very similar terms here to what we find in the Old Testament with regards to the law. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus elsewhere says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law. The word of God will endure forever. The word of God will stand forever. The word of God will not pass away. Not a single word, not a single letter, not a single dot, not a single mark. Every single word that God has said is true. Every single word that God has said will never pass away. Christian, that's why I plead with you so often to give yourself over to this word. Give yourself over to the only thing that's going to endure forever. I get it. Studying the Bible is hard. I promise you I get it. You pay me money to do it, and it's still hard. Studying the word of God is difficult, and I get it. It's going to feel scholarly at times. It's going to feel brainy at times. God has called us to be transformed through the renewal of our mind. Christianity isn't just pure emotion. Christianity must involve. As a matter of fact, I would argue that it almost always begins in the mind. It can't stay in the head. It's got to move to the heart. It's got to transform the soul. It's got to drive you to action. But difference, it can't pass over the mind. You can't skip the mind and go straight to the heart. You've got to understand what it is that I'm trying to believe in here. What is it that Jesus is saying? And so, yes, it's going to take mental activity. It's going to take focus. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take effort. But, Christian, what else would you give your life over to? What else would you devote yourself to? Other than this word that will not pass away. And so I hear so many people that will say, you know what? I've just committed to live my life based on this. I'm going to love God, and I'm going to love my neighbor, and that's enough for me. And that's very nice, and that's very good, and that sounds very spiritual. Sounds quite spiritual but Christian my question would be who is God who is this God that you seek to love with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul he reveals himself in his word what does it mean to rightly love this God what does it mean to rightly love your neighbor he reveals it in his word what hope do you have of rightly knowing this man knowing this God loving this man rightly responding to them Loving, the way, loving them the way that God's word tells us to love if you have not given yourself over to the spirit by the working of the word to transform you. It all happens by this word, the sanctification, the washing of the word of Christ. Don't you see? You will always fail. You will always fall short in your, in your goal of loving your neighbor and loving God if you do not do it in submission to the word. 
If you do not do it by the working of the Spirit and the power of his word, you will always fall short. If you do not live in subjection and submission and absolute understanding of the authority that is the word of God, you will always fall short. And you cannot know this word if you don't study it. It doesn't work by osmosis. I think for some Christians, nobody ever told them that leaving your, you're leaving your Bible in your truck all week isn't going to make you more like Christ. The words aren't going to jump off the page and get into your head. You've got to take the time to read the word. Maybe study the word. Maybe memorize the word. Maybe sing the word. Maybe talk about the word. Maybe sit in small groups and actually talk about the word, not your feelings. That that's the way he's going to show you what it means to love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I have to tell you, there's, I've never found a church, you will almost never find a church that does not say that they live with an absolute dependence upon the word of God. You will never find a church. Go to any church and go, hey, do y'all preach the Bible? That's it. That's all we preach is the Bible. And you will almost never find a Christian that does not say that they don't believe in the absolute inerrancy and authority and sufficiency of the word of God. But in practice, churches and Christians like that are very, very rare. People that actually believe that this is the word of God, the, the very God that breathes out the stars, that he has breathed these words, that it really is sufficient for everything God wants you to know, to walk in holiness in this lifetime, to know him, to be saved in the end, that it alone must be the absolute and ultimate standard for how we're to live in this life, that we don't go and look for the wisdom of this world, that we come here and only here, that is a rare, rare thing. Dear friends, you need to know this church we have is a rare, rare thing. We're not perfect. We're a long way from perfect. But dear friends, what we experience here, what we enjoy here as a community of people devoted to this word, it is rare. It is not the norm. So we praise God for what he's doing here. But I would ask you, don't believe that just because you're a part of this rare thing that you're doing this. Each man must examine himself and ask, am I living like this? Do I truly live like a man that believes that this is the enduring, never fading word of God? Am I truly living like this is the way in which I may know God, which I may love God, which I may look more like the son of God, Jesus Christ? Am I truly living like this is where I can know what God desires for me to know to live out this lifetime to his glory? Or am I not? And if not, you must be warned. Because just like, I can't point to some passage of scripture that says you must gather together with the saints in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It says that we should gather together, so clearly that's a sin, but there's plenty of sins that Christian men and women do. And so I can't come to you and I can't say, look, you are clearly not a follower of Jesus Christ because you don't gather together with the saints whenever they're together. But I can tell you I know very few that don't. In the same way, I cannot tell you, I cannot point you to some specific passage of scripture that says, if you don't give yourself over to the study of the Bible, if you don't give yourself other to live in absolute submission to the Bible, then you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you, it's very, very rare to find one that doesn't. And so I have a very hard time whenever I find a man that wants to know, he wants some kind of assurance that he is in fact following after Jesus Christ, and yet I find that that man has no use for the word of God, I have a hard time giving him any kind of assurance. Now, I do not mean a lack of opposition to the word. I do not mean a positive affinity to the word. I do not mean men that cherry pick portions of the word in order to prove what they already believe to be true. I'm talking about a deep abiding love for the word of God. I'm talking about planting your life upon the word of God. I'm talking about living in dependence upon the word of God. I'm talking about sitting under it. Complete authority in my life will be the word of God. It says it, I will do it. If I don't know what it says, I will seek brothers and sisters that can help me see what it says and how that applies to my life. But that's the only standard. That when you and I get in a fight, we come to the word of God and we say, what does the word of God says? That settles it. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's what it means to live in subjection to the word of God. Because so closely are those two things tied together. Look throughout scripture and just, just take note through this week, through your personal Bible reading, take note of the number of times that you find the word of God or the name of God and the person of God spoken of almost as one. To reject the word of God is to reject the God who has given the word. We find this all throughout scripture, and so how, we must ask ourselves, how can I claim to truly love God while I reject the word in which he has revealed himself to me? How can I truly claim to love God while I have no deep desire to spend time in the word in which he has revealed himself? So turn with me to 12th chapter of John's gospel. We're gonna finish there. These are the final public words of Jesus before the crucifixion that, that have been recorded by John. This is very likely the same day that we're studying here. John's gospel is set up so differently. What you find is you get to, 
you get to chapter 12 and boom, everything that comes after that is Passion Week. And so I believe we're only in Tuesday of Passion Week in John's gospel here in chapter 12. And he's, Jesus is making one last invitation. He's making one last call to people to turn from their sin and to trust in him and be saved. So I'm in verse 44. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus is making clear as he always have, I am the father, I am one. You cannot come to the father in any way apart from me. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. A theme all throughout God's, uh, throughout John's gospel that he is the true light of the world that any who walk with him will walk in light that you cannot claim to have fellowship with Jesus Christ while continuing to walk in the darkness verse 47 if anyone hears my words and does not keep them I do not judge them it's at that point where everybody goes oh good I'm not judged for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world you know the crowd that says I don't judge anybody they read texts like this and they find that as some kind of affirmation for this. But what Jesus Christ is saying here is that clearly in his first coming, he did not come to judge the world. He came to save the world. He came to offer salvation. He came to offer himself. But there will come a day when he comes to judge the, judge the world because he goes on, verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Again, I say, see the connection between Jesus Christ and his words. To receive his word or to fail to receive his word is to reject him, to reject him as Lord and Savior, to reject him as master, reject him as king if you fail to receive his words. They're so closely tied together. The word which will not pass away, this word that offers salvation, this word that calls us to repentance, this word that offers access to the kingdom of God, this word in which Jesus reveals himself, that to reject that word is to reject Jesus Christ himself. He's saying, if you reject my word, you reject me. And those that reject me, they have a judge. You have a judge. He goes on. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, he has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last days. That very word that you have rejected will serve as your judge on the last days. It's the return of Jesus Christ. This judgment will be based on what you have done with this word. What have you done with the word that's been entrusted to you? Dear friends, we don't live in Afghanistan. We can get in all kind of arguments you want about what that judgment's gonna look like based on what's been revealed to you, based on what you have access to, based on what message you've received. But we don't live in a place where we meet in underground churches. We don't meet in a, in a, a place where we're starving for good, solid, biblical teaching. My heart is so warmed whenever I have people throughout our congregation that come to me and say, listen to the sermon I listened to online. I'm not selfish, guys. I want you to listen to good preaching. Please make sure it's good preaching but I want you listening to good, solid, biblical preaching. I don't need to be the only voice. I'm your only pastor. God has placed me here. God has placed us together. He's building a family. But dear friends, I am blessed beyond belief when somebody calls me and says, I listened to a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon this week and I go, praise God. Maybe he'll clear up some of the stuff I made a mess of on Sunday. We don't live in a place, just take out your phone. You can listen to thousands of sermons. We don't live in a place where we're sitting around praying that some missionaries are gonna show up and give us our own copy of God's word. You got them in the pew. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, take one of these, please. Do you live in a place where you got access to the Bible on your phone? You got all different kinds of translations. You got the Bible that will read it to you while you sleep. I don't know if that works. Maybe go to sleep and just listen to the Bible while you sleep. We've got access to all of God's word we could ever want. We live in an absolute embarrassment of riches with regards to the word of God. And so the question is, what have you done with it? By that word, you will be judged if you reject that word and you reject Jesus Christ through the rejection of that word. You reject Jesus Christ because you refuse to believe that he is who he says he is. You refuse to take him at his word. There will come a day when you stand before him and you are judged by that word. Refusing to receive that word, refusing to believe that word, refusing to respond rightly in obedience to that word. It will stand before you as judge and it will haunt you. So you have sat in a church like this where people of God love his word where you've had Bible studies up and down this hall, you've had in-home Bible studies, you've had a pastor pleading with you to grab hold of this word, to consume this word, to live in this word, these words will haunt you if you reject them and you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord. So the question is, what will you do with this word? Will you believe that this word is the thing that will endure forever? Will you place your hope in the things of this world that are sure to pass away? 
Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that by it you have revealed yourself to us, that you have shown us who we really are, and you have shown us the only rightful response, and that is to bend our knee, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and to live in absolute submission to him. We know, Father, that we don't have the ability to do this on our own, that it requires your supernatural working. Your hand, your hand alone can bring us to that place. And so, Father, we pray that you do exactly that. Do not allow us to live one more second, one more day, one more ounce of energy devoted to the things of this world that are wasting away. Help us to live as a people of the word. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.